6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapter 1. We are starting a new book tonight, and uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, we're going to undertake a review of what's probably the longest book in the Bible, by some reckoning, a book that is um, most misunderstood, a book that is written by a person who many scholars consider the most spiritual person in the Old Testament. That's quite a statement. I won't try to defend it. It's just the opinion of some scholars, but it just to, you know, give you some perspective. Book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah the prophet. His name, by the way, uh, and of course, as, as you are painfully aware, the first evening tends to be just a lot of yak. You know, we'll get, we'll get into it. But there's so much background that it's probably uh, good to, to cover to give you some perspective. And you'll understand some of our problems as we get in. In fact, that's what I'm going to try to do now is give you some overview, some perspective, what we're going to try to get into, and some of the dimensions of, of our exploration in the next uh, uh, number of weeks. Jeremiah's name happens to mean the Lord hurls, throws. It can mean, as more often quoted, as meaning exalts, throws up, holds high, okay? Jeremiah, the Lord exalts or hurls. It happens that the book of Jeremiah, yes, it's a book of prophecy. He is one of the most revered prophets. But it also happens to be one of the most autobiographical books in the Bible. And therefore, we know a great deal about this man. Unlike some of these prophets that we read and enjoy and benefit from, but don't know a lot about, Jeremiah, we're going to discover, we're going to reach right into his very soul. We're going to understand the man, his feelings, his passions, his intensity, his concern. We're going to, and and fortunately, he also happens to be a, a model for us to follow in the sense that he's deeply spiritual and uncompromising with himself and with his nation Israel more specifically the tribe of Judah, the house of Judah. But if I use the term Israel, I'm not using it. I'm using it in the generic sense. I, I may slip, so I might say that up front early, that technically this is obviously, well, after David, of course, uh, and Solomon, after Solomon came the civil war. And the civil war divided the nation Israel into two houses, Israel to the north, Judah to the south. And subsequent the subsequent kings particularly in the north, went from bad to worse. The northern kingdom, denotatively called Israel, just fell into ruin. Uh, idolatry, uh, each king worse than the previous, and just bad news. Ahab, Jezebel, all of that. And then, uh, but finally, the Assyrians took them captive. 
and they were made slaves. Judah to the south survived longer, and it's Judah that we're going to be focusing on. If I use the name Israel, it's a slip of the tongue in a sense, because I should be very careful and try to remember to say Judah, because we're speaking of the house of Judah, that is the southern kingdom, the southern half of the nation, recognizing the northern half is already fallen, already gone. But for some substantial period of time, Judah is in better shape, relatively. There are some reforms, and then things deteriorate. Ultimately, the Babylonians do two things. They conquer the Assyrians, so they're on top. They're the world power at the time. And, um, but ultimately, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, is used by God to take Judah captive. And Jeremiah is in the strange position of admonishing his country to surrender, to, to yield to, these, to this Gentile ruler because Jeremiah says that this is the instrument of God for judgment of the nation. This was not a popular theme, okay? He was treated as a treasonous uh, person. It's actually more complicated than that, and I'll unravel as we go, but just to give you sort of a superficial overview. And, of course, it's in, in, in Jeremiah's time that uh, Judah falls and the Babylonian captivity begins. This happens to be one of the most important portions of Old Testament history for Israel, because it's her fall, and it has lots of relevance, both historically and also prophetically. It becomes a very crucial period of time because it's the period of time that Daniel and Ezekiel and many, many prophets, and we'll, I'll try to give that map to you in a minute, it's a period of some power changes and things that have profound implications on your understanding of the Bible in general. But let me sort of tip you off in advance. It's also a period of time that will lend itself to you and I of some incredible discoveries relative to our day and Israel today and Jerusalem today and uh, the 70 weeks gets in there on the Daniel side, but there's some other discoveries we'll deal with as we go. Fortunately, the chronology in this period is, is amazingly well documented, and that'll turn out to be very meaningful for you and I, because the, these, the, we're going to talk about dates, 5-600 B.C., and this year, and the summer of this, and the spring of that, and it's going to impact directly this particular time in which you and I live. It will have echoes in May of 48th, and in June of 67, and indeed to you and I in the coming horizon. So it's going to turn out to be a very, very relevant book. But as long as I'm taking the luxury up front of sort of, I'm going to operate as if you're essentially all new, and yet I'll forget that and, and, and make references to those of us that have been sort of, those of you that have endured, you know, Daniel, Isaiah, Zechariah, and some of the others. Um, first of all, if you're taking notes, I'll try not to make this do this, I'll try to do this every time we meet, but in the upper right-hand corner of your notepad, you have to put Acts 17.11. Some, I'm going to go out of the Department of Motor Vehicles and try to get that as a license plate, I think. Um, except I can't get the enough digits in there. Acts 17.11. That's where Luke tells you not to believe a thing Chuck Missler tells you. You are to receive this with readiness of mind, but to search the Scriptures daily to prove whether those things be so. So having warned you of Acts 17.11, not to believe anything I say, my intention will be to share with you lots of background and ideas and thoughts, some of them sound, some of them speculative, but with that license, I will allow myself the freedom of moving afield a bit 
because it's sometimes fun. But trust you as mature growing Christians to not believe anything I say, but check it out. And if I've done nothing else but get you into some fresh reference material, praise God. Now, a couple of other things. I'm still going through bibliographies. I'm dealing with some more than a dozen commentaries. Some of them are clearly better than others. And as was my style years ago, I'll try to do again as I into this a little bit more, I'll try to prepare a bibliography for those of you that are really anxious to expand your library. The bibliography could list some 30 or 40 books. However, I'll try to focus on one or two that seem to be the most useful. But I'll tell you up front right now, those of you that would like to do collateral reading for these studies, and you get a lot more out of them if you do, I will be sharing with you as we go through passages in Chronicles and Kings, Second Chronicles, Second Kings, that give you the historical background. And as I do that, you can take notes, and I encourage you to read in that general area of Second Chronicles and Kings, typically Second Kings 22, 23, 24 in that range, and Second Chronicles 34, 35 in that range. And your study Bibles have them, but that. that Second Kings 22, give or take a few chapters, and Second Chronicles 34 and 35, give or take a few chapters, is the general area in which there's enormous historical background. But I'm going to surprise you and suggest an additional book. Those of you that are planning to really sort of hang in there with us during the study of Jeremiah, I'm going to suggest you read a book that's got nothing to do with Jeremiah and yet may have everything to do with God's purpose in the study, and that's to read The Light and the Glory. The Light and the Glory by Peter Marshall and another guy, I forget the other, David Manuel, thank you. I forgot. I apologize to the other guy for not remembering his name, but it's a popular book, and I encourage you to read it. There's several like it, but that's probably the one you best know and would be available in your stores, and it's a book about the United States. And as, you, as we go through Jeremiah, you may understand God's purpose in raising this issue before our attention at this particular time in this particular way. Well, anyway, Jeremiah, most autobiographical. We know more about Jeremiah than any other Old Testament prophet. and that's. But he's also the least read and most misunderstood. We all have sort of an indefinite feeling that, well, he's the weeping prophet. And indeed, you touch his work at any place and it'll weep. There's deep, deep feeling. Um... It's also regarded by many scholars as the most difficult book in the Old Testament for a number of reasons, not the least of which is the arrangement of the chapters. The chapters are not necessarily chronological, and that throws a lot of people. Even Daniel has 12 chapters. First six are narrative, last six are collection of visions, but they, you can sort of sort that through and get comfortable with it. The Gospels are sort of, well, they're basically, well, we, correction, we sort of assume that they're chronological. They're not really, but some of them are a little, if I won't get to that. Um, there are arrangement problems. Uh, chapters 46 through 51 occur before the fall of Jerusalem, which is mentioned in chapter 39. You have to take all this down because we're going to go through this as we go through the chapters, but just to give you sort of an overview. So 46 to through 51 are not, even though they're near the end of the book, they occur. They deal with events that occurred before chapter 39. Chapters 37 through 44 do seem to be consecutive. Chapters 50 and 51 are special problems we'll deal with, and there's a very special problem with chapter 52, which is, uh, uh, again, things. all these things we'll deal with as we get there. But just up front, I should let you know, we're going to find that there are some scholastic arrangement problems. 
However, the answer is very simple, and that's just to take it chapter by chapter and don't struggle with the arrangement, struggle with what he's saying, and, and let the Holy Spirit deal with that. But there are some arrangement problems. There's another thing that some people regard as a problem, but fortunately I don't think really turns out to be, and that is to really understand Jeremiah. You do need to have an awful lot of history, extra-biblical background. The good news, it's very well documented in the Scripture and also through all kinds of archaeological discoveries. We understand pretty well what happened in that period. And when you understand the flow of the kings and the powers and things, the book of Jeremiah will mean a lot more to you. Sometimes when you take a book, you have some historical background, but it's just a flourish. It's a little just sort of flavor. Other times, and this is one of them, it really will help to have a, a ceiling for what's going on, and I'll try to give you some background. Fortunately, it's dramatic enough, understandable enough, that I think it'll, it, uh, it should be pretty interesting. Uh, it is the longest book of the Bible, and it's regarded by many as the most valuable. Now, in the Hebrew canon, the Old Testament is divided into three groups, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And the prophets were divided into the former prophets and the latter prophets. The former prophets included the books of Joshua, Judges, and Samuel, and Kings, which may surprise you because we normally don't think of it, but that's the way they were grouped. And the latter prophets included the major, what we call the major and minor prophets, not counting Lamentations and Daniel, they were classified differently. But at the head of the scroll of the latter prophets was Jeremiah. It was the lead book of what was called the latter prophets. That may explain a little problem that we have in Matthew 27, 9 that we talked about before. Talked about the arrangement thing. Let's talk a little bit about what you can expect in the style. Jeremiah is as opposite from Isaiah as you can imagine. Isaiah was elegant, lofty, uh, fabulous, fabulous writer, but with a very high style. Jeremiah is the opposite. He is very direct. He is very simple, but as a result, very vivid. Um, very unornamented, in contrast to Isaiah, but he's very incisive and clear. He has a lot of poetry, and is very lyrical, but is still very direct. Heavy use of nature, he's a very he's a man of the earth. As I mentioned, he's called the weeping prophet. He is extremely tender, sympathetic, will express almost continually a deep anguish of soul. This is not casual stuff, it is the very fiber of his being, and yet will come through, even in our translations. A couple of other things you might be intrigued to know is there are 66 passages in the book from the book of Deuteronomy. And that becomes particularly provocative when you recognize that it was during his ministry that the book of the law was discovered in the temple. They came from an apostate background. The previous kings were idolatrous. There's a reform, and one of the things that happens during the reform is that in one of the storerooms, chambers, somewhere, tucked away, lost, they discovered the law. Book of Deuteronomy. That has a big impact. Well, there's 66 passages of Deuteronomy in it. Uh, references to the Job and Psalms, in effect. Lots of um, uh, indebtedness in the minds of some scholars to Hosea. Uh, it's quoted over 50 times. Book of Jeremiah is quoted over 50 times in the New Testament and over half of those in the book of Revelation. So as students of prophecy, that should immediately get your attention. Okay. And he is regarded by some of the more learned scholars as 
one of the greatest spiritual giants of all time. That's quite a statement to speak of someone in the Bible, because there's some pretty good guys in the Bible. Jeremiah does pretty well. Okay, uh, now we speak of prophets all the time. One of the things that is worth sort of having in view is that the 8th and 7th and half of the 6th century B.C., in other words, from 800 through, call it 650, which, remember, they're going downhill, we're B.C., right? In minus numbers, if you will. Um, there was a galaxy of prophets in Israel, Zephaniah, Obadiah, and a gal by the name of Huldah the prophetess were contemporaries of Jeremiah in Judah. Zephaniah, Obadiah, and Huldah. And we'll speak of Huldah superficially. She shows up in 2 Kings 22 and 2 Chronicles 34. She's a very well-known prophetess in Jerusalem. Jeremiah was Manathoth in the early stages, a little, you know, not in the, the main limelight. He, that quickly changes. And now we're going to be in that period of time when Judah goes into captivity. During the captivity, there's also three prophets, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Jeremiah. Daniel's deported as a teenager, Ezekiel in the second siege, and then, of course, uh, Jeremiah. There are apparently about 18 points of contact between Jeremiah and Ezekiel, so that's no surprise. Also, Nahum and Habakkuk are contemporaries at this time, approximately. Now... Now comes the part that I, I'm, I'm, I'm resisting strongly the temptation of using view graphs or blackboards, because first of all, not everybody can see them, and it really screws up the tape, I see. So, and you know, then Doug gets bothered with letters from his where can I get the drawings? And so we're gonna try to do this verbally, and yet at the same time, bear with me, because what I want you to have a perspective of are a, is a period of time that will span five kings. Three of them are very important. Two of them only reign three months. They're important, but they don't do that much damage in three months. But there's five kings. The first one I want you to sort of feel you know is Josiah. Josiah the king. He reigned from about 639 to 609. I don't think you have to drop, you don't have to jot all these numbers down unless you just like to do that sort of thing. But Josiah reigned for, for about uh, 30 years, 639 to 609. Now, Josiah was a good guy. Josiah had uh, a real desire. Prior to him, there was um, well, Hezekiah, and then he, he was a good guy. Then he was followed by Manasseh, who was bad news. He was the one that's reputed, through tradition at least, to have sawn Isaiah in half and all of that. Bad scene. Josiah comes on the scene, and he's very positive. And I'll talk more about these kings in a minute, but first of all, I'll give you a perspective. Under the reign of Josiah, who's basically a good guy, he's reigning about 10 years when Jeremiah is called. Jeremiah is about 20 at the time when he's called as a prophet. So Jeremiah was 10 when Josiah takes rulership. So even as a small child, he had some exposure to the bad news that preceded Josiah. He probably clearly had the uh, opportunity to, to understand this good king coming on board who started to to try to straighten out the land. I'll give you more background on his reign in a minute. But then Jeremiah gets called about 629. It's about 15, 17 years later that Nineveh falls. Bear in mind, we're in the southern kingdom. Josiah is doing some reforms. The northern kingdom has fallen to the Assyrians, but they're starting to face pressure from this rising power 
that's a, it's actually far to the east, but you'll always hear it spoken of as if it's to the north. And that may puzzle you. When you read the Bible, you wonder when Babylon threatens Jerusalem, it's from the north. And you say, that's kind of crazy. Well, there's an Arabian desert that causes them to go north and then south. So they're coming to, whenever they attack Jerusalem, they attack from the north. Even though they're, you know, a couple hundred miles, their head, Babylon is a couple hundred, if you look at a map, you know, it's several hundred miles to the east. But the path to get to Jerusalem is actually a northerly passage, okay? So the, the tra if you understand the topography of the land, the geography of the land, uh, they come from the north. And, and Israel was like a land bridge between that northern area and Egypt. So as Egypt and whoever, be it Babylon or Assyria or the Romans, wherever the war is going on, Israel's right in the passageway. And whoever is taking over is trampling through their yards. So that's why the whole history is one of, of uh, traffic. I suppose there's an analogy with Poland and Europe or something, but uh, the net of it is is that um, they're right in the traffic pattern. And of course, in, uh, prior to Jeremiah, Assyria is the dominant power, has taken over the northern kingdom. But Assyria now is starting to face this growing power. There's really three major powers, if you think of it that way, Assyria, Babylon, and Egypt. And uh, they're fighting with each other, aligning with each other, and whatever. But Babylon's gradually starting to get powerful. Uh, Nineveh falls in 612 during Josiah's reign. He dies at Megiddo in 609 B.C. And Jehoiakim has, is on the throne for three months. And then Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim will be followed by Jehoiachin. That's what, so I'm going to mispronounce it a little bit to emphasize Jehoiakin and Jehoiachin, two different guys. Jehoiakim is the one that gives Jeremiah the toughest time. And it's also through during his reign that there's this most important battle in that part of the country, uh, the Battle of Karshemesh. And that's where the Assyrian Empire falls. They had been allied with the Egyptians. Pharaoh Necho is defeated at, uh, uh, by the Chaldeans and the Medes. And that's when Nebuchadnezzar, his general of the army, makes that battle. It also happens that at back home his dad dies. He's now king of the world. And uh, that's when things get kind of rough um, as far as uh, Judah is concerned because the Babylonians are used by God to, to punish Judah for their sin. And it's Jeremiah's burden to keep reminding the people uh, uh, to repent, but they don't, and God had pronounced judgment falls. Under Je Jehoiakim, uh, as I said, is the Battle of Karshemesh, and then starts what's really three sieges of Jerusalem. And this is important to try to understand. Jehoiakim reigns from 609 to 597, when uh, the Battle of Karshemesh takes place, and Nebuchadnezzar succeeds in defeating Pharaoh Necho, the, the the ally of the Assyrians, Egypt, Egyptian ally. Uh, at that time, on his, you know, he he lays siege to Jerusalem. That's the first of three sieges of Jerusalem. It's in that siege that certain nobles are exiled, including Daniel. That's when Daniel gets deported to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar puts up in office a guy by the name of Jehoiachin. And he is also bad news. He's such bad news that Jeremiah pronounces a blood curse on him. God puts a blood curse on the royal line, and we'll talk about that a lot when we get there. 
Ajayachin intrigues, tries to adopt a pro-Egypt policy against the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar takes a dim view of that. That leads to the second siege of Jerusalem, where um, Ezekiel is exiled. That's why Ezekiel, that's how he gets to Babylon. He does his writings while in Babylon. And it's in Ajayachin that is, is, is replaced with uh, Zedekiah. And Zedekiah reigns for um, about, about 17 years, 18 years. And uh, Zedekiah also does some poor politics and intrigues with Nebuchadnezzar's enemies. Nebuchadnezzar now has about a belly full of all of this. And he has the third siege of Jerusalem. And that's where he levels it and takes them all captives and destroys the temple. And then he appoints a governor of Gedalia. And uh, so that's the, the rough era from Josiah all the way through Zedekiah. There's actually five kings, but two only serve three months each. And so there's actually three kings that are very, very major, very important to understand, and we'll talk more about as we go. Now, as I said, Jeremiah's call is about 629 B.C. It's about four years after Jeremiah starts in service as a prophet that there is a guy by the name of Nabopolassar. He's from a province called Chaldea, southern province of Babylon, and he emerges to power. And he reigns until the Battle of Karshemesh and the fall of the Assyrian Empire. It happens that that's where he dies. He doesn't, not in the battle, but he dies. His son, Nebuchadnezzar, technically Nebuchadnezzar II, and incidentally, more properly, it's Nebuchadrezzar is the proper way. It's been mistransliterated for years, but I'm not going to try to change because we all know him as Nebuchadnezzar. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar uh, carries it through about, to about 562. I want to make sure, I want to talk a little bit more, more about Josiah. He took the throne when he was eight years old. Okay. And he reigned for, until he was about 38. He reigned for 30 years. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.